If you've got a Bible, you can turn it to Nehemiah chapter 5. If you haven't, don't worry. It'll be projected on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 5. We're carrying on through our series of working through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. This morning, we are looking at generous justice, justice, care for the poor. And before we read it, let me, can I recommend you a book? I just have to fish it out. Oh, it's up there. Oh, I don't need to find my copy. Can I recommend you a book? It's always good to recommend books. It reminds me of the joke of the uh, man who said, I've got, a, I've got a, a book I want to recommend you, he said to his friend. His friend said, um, okay, what is it? He says, it's, it's a book on uh, anti-gravity. Is it any good? He said, it is. I can't put it down. I've got worse. <laughs> but this is a good book. The Myth of the Undeserving Poor by Martin Charlesworth and Natalie Williams. Um, they work within, um, uh, really, in New Frontiers and wider in terms of helping churches understand uh, how they can serve their local communities, how they can empower their local communities, how they can serve the poor around them, how they can work for justice issues. I would really recommend this. as a wonderful book. It's not very long. It's very easy to read, easy to get hold of, um, and you won't be able to put it down. So, Nehemiah chapter 5. We're just going to read up to verse 13, so from 1 to 13. Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we have the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard that outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people, only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also leading the people, lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses and also the interest you're charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine and olive oil. We will give it back, they said. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they'd promised. 
I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. May such a person be shaken out and emptied. Okay, so we are in the 5th century BC. Just a little bit of a background if you haven't um, heard any of our talks on Nehemiah as yet. The Jewish nation have been invaded. They've been conquered. They've been carried off. Many carried off into exile. And we get to a point in their story where some of the Jews are allowed to return to Jerusalem, to the land. And Nehemiah is one of these guys. He is very, he's a close servant of the king of Persia. And he's allowed to return to Jerusalem. And he goes. And his focus really is on rebuilding the walls of the city. It's a huge task. Everyone is involved. Everyone's got a role to play in seeing the walls rebuilt. And as we heard last week, there's, there's been some opposition. There's been some criticism. There's, there's been um, some attack um, to the, to the rebuilding of the walls, to try and stop it, to try and halt it, to try and slow it down. And now, now the opposition, now the challenge, almost seems to come from within the community. It's a lot more subtle. But it is just as destructive to the work of rebuilding the walls. So it seems, it seems to be that there is not enough food for everyone. There's a great outcry from the people and their wives. See, this was culturally significant. See, usually it was left in their day for the man to raise the problems, for the men to raise a cry of what was, what was wrong in the community. But, but here we've got the women now as well. It shows how serious it was. And, and this is not them saying, look, we think we deserve more. No, no, this, this is them saying, this is life and death. We have to eat to stay alive. Do you know there are countries around the world who are on the brink of famine? Countries like Somalia, parts of Nigeria, parts of Kenya, parts of Uganda, to name a few, not to mention nations caught up in conflict, Yemen, Syria. There's people in this country that struggle to put enough food on the table, that have to miss meals because they want their children to eat instead of them. And we complain when there's not enough lettuce in the shops. So why is there this food problem? Well, the people are building and working on the wall. And we kind of read in chapter uh, 4, verse 22, that people are staying in the city to keep up progress on the wall. So they're staying, they're staying day and night in the city to work. So they're not going back to the fields. They're not going back to their rural areas to work on their farms, to work on their fields, to produce grain where food would have been grown, and now there's not enough. But not only that, they're saying, Do you know, we've had to mortgage, um, borrow money against our fields and our property 
and our vineyards just so that we can pay for food because there's not enough food. And we're having to borrow money off others so that we can pay the royal tax to the Persian empire, to the Persian king. But it's even worse than that because their debts are not being paid. They're having to sell some of their kids into slavery and possibly some of their daughters were being taken as second wives for some of the wealthier men. It's a real scandal. But the scandal is this. It's to the other wealthy Jews of the community that they're having to do this. See, it's, it's our own flesh and blood who we're having to sell and borrow from. See, debt slavery was allowed in Jewish law. It was allowed in the community. And you know, while it's not the best thing, it it was a slavery that was a little less brutal than how we think of slavery, given the horrors of the African slave trade, even some of the things of modern-day slavery that we have to face today. But But it was a way for someone to clear their debts in the community. See, after six years, they had a system where after six years, debts had to be cancelled and slaves had to be released. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 15. And every 49 years, this was massive and ripped large. And it was called the year of Jubilee, and that's where we take our name. But most Bible scholars say that what was probably happening here in Nehemiah's day was the wealthy were abusing it. And they'd been charging interest on loans. So they'd been saying, you can borrow £100, but you're going to have to pay me back £150. It was strictly forbidden in the community. Exodus 2.25 says, if you lend money to one of my people, um, so this this is God speaking, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. So it's clear the wealthy among them were taking advantage for their own selfish gain. And Israel's system was meant to guard against that. It was meant to guard against this huge gap growing between rich and poor. But that is not happening. What's Nehemiah's response? What's his response? What's his response? He's angry. Yeah, well done, Val. He is angry. No, it's okay to be angry at the right things. Actually, your anger can be a measure of concern, something you're concerned about. It can be a measure of your love for something better. Anger at injustice is a good thing. Anger at levels of poverty is a good thing. But just make sure your anger leads you to do something positive, leads you to do something godly. Nehemiah takes action. He calls for the people to stop and change. He calls them to account. He says, I'm laying down the law here. 
See, through the Bible, we see God's heart for the poor. From that book that I mentioned, um, Martin and Natalie uh, kind of set out what they believe the Bible shows us about how God cares for the poor. And they set out a framework of four areas, which I've got uh, on a slide somewhere. There we go. Excellent. They say the Bible shows us that God cares for the economically poor, people who don't have enough material needs for their life. He cares for the relationally poor, people who don't have the family, the community networks around them to help them in a crisis. We've heard a little bit about that already, haven't we? He is concerned for the aspirationally poor, those who, who, don't, who lack hope to change the circumstances that they're in. And he cares for the spiritually poor, those who don't know the generous love of God the Father through Jesus Christ. And do you know what? I, th- I think we should be grateful for some of the laws we have in this nation, for some of them, that help to seek and address poverty and injustice. And I, th- and I think we should be grateful for people who speak up for poverty and justice issues in this nation. Some who are believers, some perhaps who are not. I think we should be grateful that that happens in this nation to a degree. But the Christian message is not simply, well, just change the laws. The Christian message isn't simply just change as you act towards the poor. No, no, Jesus' message was, I've come to change your heart. I've come to change your desires. I've come to change the things that you cherish. I've come to put my generosity and my compassion in you. See, care for the poor is an outworking of the kingdom of God. It is. When, when people encountered Jesus... They were encountering the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. In a lot of the accounts of Jesus' life, he's saying the kingdom's come to you because you've encountered me. Because you're encountering me, you're encountering the kingdom of God where kingdom values reign and rule. Do we see this in Jesus' life? Okay, let's have a quick look at Luke chapter, end of chapter 18 and, verse, and chapter 19. Jesus is is going through Jericho. He's on a journey going through Jericho and there's a blind man begging on the road. He's hoping someone will take pity on him. And you know, as the people in Nehemiah's day made an outcry, so this guy cries out, Jesus! Son of David! And Jesus shows compassion. He shows compassion. He restores his sight. This man praises God. He goes off praising God. Then then we read about another man who's trying to see Jesus straight after that. And a guy called Zacchaeus. You may have heard of him. He was a wealthy tax collector. He was a crooked 
tax collector. He put selfish gain over thinking of others. Maybe he'd heard about this blind man being healed. Maybe that's why he was seeking out Jesus. We don't know. But, but Jesus sees him. And do you know what? Jesus could have called him out at that point. Jesus could have said, look, here's crooked Zacchaeus. Just like one of those wealthy men back in Nehemiah's day who took advantage of the poor. There he is. Let's look at, Jesus, uh, let's look at Zacchaeus. What a dreadful man. But you know, he doesn't. He invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for a meal. Zacchaeus, come down. I must eat with you tonight. And if you know the story, Zacchaeus is transformed by his encounter with Jesus. And he says, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And do you know, if I've cheated anyone, I'll give them back four times the amount. He's transformed. See, I think in these two people, Jesus is not only showing compassion for the poor, but he's showing how a heart of generosity grows. Do you get it? When someone encounters Jesus, it will cause them to be compassionate and generous. Okay, one more bit of the Bible. Um, Philippians chapter 2. And I've got this on the screen for you, so you don't need to turn to it if you don't want. Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul saying, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to the interests of each of you, but not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. See, Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't a dead teacher from thousands of years ago, who's just left us a good example of how to care for the poor. No, he's alive today. And we're united with him. That's what Paul's saying. You're united with Christ. When we choose to follow him, we're united with his life. Paul says, if you've been united with that life, then you'll not selfishly just look to the needs of your, yourself, but actually you'll look to the needs of others. And he's saying, now live like that. Now pursue that. Now, like, like uh, Jill was saying, now, now come on, let, now work with that. Now come on, do something about that. Some of you may know the name John Kirkby who was uh, a man who lived just north of Bradford, had a normal life, got into his adult life and found that he hit some difficulties. And for reasons, his first marriage failed and he ended up heavily in debt. And it was in these circumstances that he encountered Jesus through a Christian couple he met Jesus and his life was transformed. 
And out of that, because of this life transformation, he set up a charity called CAP, Christians Against Poverty, which has grown and grown and grown and helped thousands of people across this nation. He just started it with a few pounds he had and a computer, helping some people with debt because he'd encountered Jesus. Some of you may know the name David Anderson. I suspect Becky and Steve might know that name. Who, in the US, was brought up by his parents to know that his Christian life wasn't just about him. It wasn't about them and what they could get out of life. It was about how they could serve the people around them. And he saw a need. He saw families in his community in need. And he said, I'm going to find a hundred families to help children where their families are in crisis in this town. And the authorities said, that's wonderful, but you'll never be able to do it because children just aren't important in our society enough. And do you not, through hard work and the grace of God, he did it. And he set up an organization called Safe Families for Children which has expanded out from the US and is touching lives in Teesside and now across this nation. See, when we realize that in Jesus, God has shown compassion to us, that, that on the cross, Jesus' life that was given for us was the most generous gift that we could ever receive, then we're changed. We're changed. The generosity of God's grace is overwhelming. See, social action, generous justice, things like this, serving the poor, isn't about shaming you into action. It's not about shaming us and making us feel guilty to do something. No, no, it comes out of generosity. It comes out of compassion. It comes out of encountering Jesus and the generosity of God and being moved to serve those around us because of all that we have received. And that's what's happening. That's what's happening in Open Door. That's what's happening in the Hope Foundation. That's what's happening in the Food Bank. That's what's happening in Safe Families for Children. That's what's happening across Teesside. I was privileged this week to meet with a number of church leaders and uh, uh, faith, faith charity uh, leaders as well across Teesside, being friends with one another, blessing one another, hearing about what we are doing in our communities across Teesside. Do you know, if you're involved in one of those organisations, if you're involved in this type of stuff, well done. Keep going. Do you know, we're all involved in one sense in that. Keep, let's keep going. Well done. Finally, we haven't read this bit of the chapter, but it finishes with Nehemiah explaining how he ensured his personal life was an example to others of how to think and to care for those around him. See, being governor of Judah, he was entitled to all sorts of luxuries, all sorts of extravagances, but he chooses to model a different lifestyle. You know, there was, there was enough for him. There was enough for the officials at his table. There was enough 
for foreign visitors who may be passing through Judah on the way to somewhere else that he would have to provide for. There was enough for all these people. But it wasn't outlandish. It wasn't, I'll just get everything I'm entitled to and everything I can for me. I think it shows where his love was. I think it shows that he loved God. He says, I did it. I, I didn't do that because of the fear of God. As we know from a few weeks ago, fear of God isn't because we're scared of God. No, I, 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 I wasn't out lavish in my lifestyle because, because I feared God. I, I revered God. I loved God. And he loved the people. He said, others will lay a heavy burden on this people, but I'm, I'm going to choose not to. I'm not going to do that. Do you know, you and I, too, are called to be personal examples. We're called to live by the values of a different kingdom. Perhaps in your workplace. Perhaps there's a culture of just get everything you can. Think about number one. Hey, do you know, in that workplace, you've been called to model a different kingdom. To live by different values. Perhaps in your school, there is a pressure to have the best stuff, to be the one who has everything, to show you're better than anyone else. Do you know, you are called to live by a different kingdom. Church, we're called to be generous because of the generous God who has given us all that we need. I'm going to finish and we're going to respond. I think what we'll do is we'll respond with a song, if that's okay with the band, and we'll take up our offering at the same time. And then we're going to respond in prayer. We're going to serve one another, perhaps by praying for one another. But ultimately we're going to respond to the generous God who has given us everything in Christ. Listen, Jesus will strengthen you today to respond in generosity. It may not be money, maybe time, maybe in your gifts, maybe in your talents. Perhaps God's put something in you today. Perhaps there is an open door, as Steve was talking about, that he's brought you to. Perhaps you just know, know, either from today or other weeks, I've stirred about serving others, about justice issues in this place, about care for marginalized groups, perhaps, in our region. Perhaps you sense that stirring today. Perhaps God's opening a door today. Perhaps it's, I want to get involved in safe families. I just want to find out a bit more from today. Let's respond in song, take up our offering, and then we're going to go from there. Let's stand.